the failure to act with sufficient ambition to avert the climate catastrophe will be the greatest moral failure of our time. Making changes takes courage, and if we don't change things, we won't have a future. I'm an environmentalist. A lot of people don't understand that. I think I know more about the environment than most people. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. Change is coming, whether you like it or not. Zero Carbon East off. Hello and welcome to Zero Carbonista. I'm Ian Collins. Today we're recording episode 10, so if you're new to all of this, you've got some catching up to do if you're totally unfamiliar with the turf here. Uh, this series is all about the views, campaigns, thoughts of one man, Dale Vince, entrepreneur, environmentalist. He built his success in the green energy sector. He's the owner of Ecotricity. That's the world's first green energy company. He identified this area long before it was remotely on the political agenda, let alone dominating views as it does today. He actually built his first windmill back in 96. And to add to that impressive CV, he's also the chairman of Forest Green Rovers. We've got a lot to wade through down, but let's just start with something. We had a question about this, and this goes into crowdfunding. And I know this has been a big story at the moment, but it does chime with a question from Colin on Facebook, who says, why do three millionaires need to launch a crowdfunder to sue our government? So explain the story first and then the need for the crowdfunding. It sounds like the opening line to a joke, doesn't it? it uh, how many <laughs> you know, how many people does it take to change a light bulb? I was about to say there's a light bulb gag yeah. in there somewhere, surely. Yeah, what happened is, uh, along with Jolien Morm and George Monbiot, we launched a legal action. Well, actually, we, we wrote a letter to the government saying that if they don't do a certain thing, we'll launch a legal action. And the, the essence of it is to challenge national planning policy uh, in respect of energy, which was written in 2011. And what we're doing is off the back, entirely off the back of the Heathrow decision last week, in which um, the Court of Appeal ruled that Heathrow's expansion was illegal because the planning policy that it was based upon was out of date, hadn't been updated to take into account the signing of the Paris Accord in 2016 and the UK's commitment to go zero carbon in 2019, because this policy was written yeah. in 2011. And because of that, the planning permission was ruled illegal. So what we've done is written to the government and said, planning policy in respect of energy is the same as the policy that sat behind the Heathrow decision. It's out of date. It doesn't reflect our commitments to the Paris Accord or to being a, a zero carbon country. And the government must review that planning policy for energy. And if they don't, we'll go to court and ask for a ruling that they must review it. I think it's an absolute slam dunk of a case. The policy is out of date. The Heathrow ruling sets a precedent. And um, there are challenges coming from other groups on road policy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chris Packham has launched one on HS2, yeah, all on the same grounds. Yeah, yeah. The so, policies so, that are underpinning all of these decisions yeah. all have the same fatal flaw right. in that they pre predate these really important commitments, legally binding commitments by us as a country to uh, fight climate change and get to zero carbon status. So that doesn't mean nothing ever gets built again. It just means that there are considerations and uh, the, the need to adhere to Paris when anything is considered going forward. Is that is that about right? What it should mean is that we don't build things that pull in the opposite direction. So a third runway at Heathrow pulls in the opposite direction. New fossil fuel power stations pull in the opposite direction. So it's about having policy that sets the right direction of travel to mm. get to being zero carbon. And yes. of course, governments always come back and say, well, hang on, there's a sort of happy medium here. Yes, of course, we want to get to zero carbon at some point, but there's such a thing as life carrying on and things needing to... 
advance and progress, etc. These are the kind of arguments you hear from from ministers uh, and, and supporters of various projects. How do we respond to that then, then Dale? What, what, what is the what is the happy medium from an environmental perspective, or is there none? Totally, there is. We hear the same thing from big business. You hear it from uh, Heathrow last week when they announced they were going to go zero carbon. They say they take their commitment to all of this very seriously. It's a long-term uh, thing that they have to deliver. They know that. But in the meantime, let's have a third runway. That doesn't make any sense. And that's the conundrum. You know, we've got to get serious about our commitments to being zero carbon. And to do that, we've got to stop doing the bad things. We've got to stop increasing air travel, for example, and increasing the amount of fossil fuel power stations we build, for example. We've got to cut subsidies for fossil fuels, for example, all that kind of stuff. So we have to change how we live. We can't avoid that. But it doesn't mean that we stop living. We don't stop having things. We don't stop having power, the ability to travel and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was having a debate this week about, and we talked about the Gatwick potential of Gatwick. I mean, there are some people who want to look at a second runway there. There is already a sort of, if you like, an emergency runway there, but expanding that or doing something new. Um, and then there's another argument about Manston Airport, which most people would never have heard of, which is uh, an airport in Thanet in Kent, but it's been used previously a little bit for passenger travel um it's been used for freight and now it's not used for anything at all and some people are talking about reopening that and it's interesting that during the debate had various characters from different aspects of the argument talking about this and i I mentioned well how about doing none of it because it flies straight in the face of everything we're trying to do environmentally and it it looks as if i just shot somebody's dog when i made this suggestion (laughs) even those who weren't struck on the run we weren't thinking of it necessary from from that perspective so it, it, it kind of just told me, bearing in mind I'm talking to a bunch of politicians and the like when we're debating this, that the the kind of uh, arguments that you're talking about as being pretty standard and should be pretty standard for anybody who cares to read about this stuff are still very much lost on some of our political masters, if you like. I think there's a gulf between the rhetoric and the action. And what we're highlighting with this legal challenge is actually there's a gulf between policy and commitment. We've made clear, legally binding international commitments to go zero carbon, and our policy, our national policy, has not been updated to deliver that. So that's uh, that's a great place to be, actually. Yeah. Maybe the whole thing. Yeah, I was well, if say, we get to revise this policy in in the you know in the way that it and it comes out of it in the form that it needs to be, then we have a real possibility to become a zero carbon country and uh, to do something about climate change. Maybe they think they've been doing some carbon offsetting by allowing Fly B to collapse because we, we had a question on that uh, from Jane on Twitter. Uh, how can you celebrate the collapse of an airline when people lose their jobs? Yeah, I didn't celebrate it. I did write on social media that it had happened. The C-virus clearly killed it off. It was in trouble before. But what I think is wrong here is the, uh, the, the kind of things that government and even the unions as well as the industry are saying that these kinds of flights are essential to our economy. Internal flying is essential to us as a tiny island nation. I don't get that. We're not the US. We don't need to fly around the place. Flybe was struggling, has always been struggling uh, because it's so uneconomic to run, even with the big tax breaks that airlines get. The C-virus just killed it off. Mm. I actually think that's a good thing for the environment. And uh, also NASA released uh, satellite images of China uh, in the last few days that show an enormous drop in air pollution because the factories yeah. there are shut down because of the virus. The point I was making really was that, you know, the virus is a bad thing. Uh, it's going uh, it's gonna to hurt and kill a lot of people around the world. But it's having these kind of unexpected environment kind of uh, good outcomes. They may be temporary because the factories in China mm. surely will start up again. Flybe probably won't. 
and other airlines around the world are struggling as well. Virgin have had a 50% cut in bookings. And it is interesting because it shows us uh, actually a world where we all fly very much less rather than much more uh, is possible. You know, yep. that world is possible. And actually, I do think this, it's a, this is an important contrast. I said this on social media as well. Air pollution, which flying contributes to, kills 40,000 people a year in our country. That's more than 100 people every day dying from air pollution. Where is the national emergency declared? Where is the COBRA meeting for air pollution? It doesn't exist. We just carry on. It's interesting. There was, a, again, a sort of an unexpected consequence of the, uh, the coronavirus. Um, a, a company that was saying they'd, they had to do, they were, they were due to meet somewhere, Geneva, Paris or something, for a big old meeting, and they did it via a video conference instead. And yeah. the, the unexpected consequence there was, well, why have we never done this in the past? Because this makes perfect sense. It's just saved us about 55,000 quid on flights and hotel costs. And so yeah. there is a, that may be slightly anecdotal, but I'm sure there's other companies that may be discovered when you are forced to think for different reasons then you come up with whole new ways of working which have a, a, a completely unintended to begin with but actually ticks the very box that you've been talking about for years. Yeah, that's right. It just shows us all that there is another way to live and another way to do things. And, you know, I'm, as you know, personally a fan of video conferencing, taking part in international events from my office here in Stroud. It works really well. And we need to do more of that, you know, because to tackle the climate crisis, we have to stop flying or we have to fly in properly zero carbon planes where the fuel is properly zero carbon. No messing about with tree planting and that kind of stuff. And just to reiterate um, that point it, that you make a lot, um, if, if you were compiling the kind of top five of bad things us as a race are doing to the planet, then I, I'm assuming, Dale, that flying would be kind of right up there, yeah? Yeah, and I mean, it's, there's a lot about flying that's wrong, but the idea that it can continue to grow is probably the most egregious um, you know, we, we have to at, at least not grow uh, flying capacity, mm. airline, airport capacity uh, and that kind of stuff. But actually, we have to reduce the amount we fly. There's an awful lot of pointless and frivolous journeys taken by people. It's so incredibly cheap. It's, it's criminally cheap, actually, given that we have a climate crisis. Yeah. It should not have all of these tax breaks that make it stupidly cheap to fly to Europe, cheaper than it is to catch a train to London. And we have to address that. Our government has to address that. It has to rebalance or level up in the favorite language of the moment. It has to level up the transport sector so that the environment impact of flying is reflected in the cost of flying. And, and when it does that, then we'll all adapt to this economic signal and we'll travel differently. I was going to say, people will have to get used to the fact that if you if you do fly domestically, for example, so you do, I don't know, London to Newquay or something like that, which is quite, apparently quite a, a, a busy route, that might take you 45 minutes on a plane, but it would take you maybe three and a half, four hours on a train. Is that just a reality? We've got to say, okay, you're just going to have to allow for that time. That's not the end of the world, but doing the opposite could be. Let me say this, actually, uh, electric planes are coming and they will be part of the answer. And so there are small electric planes in the air now. And within 10 years, Airbus and Boeing say they'll have short haul electric flights going. So the trip from London to Newquay is exactly the kind of trip that could be made in an electric plane in the future. That's properly zero carbon. And, and that would be a viable way to get about. But, you know, that is the reality of travel, as you say, that it does take four hours on a train or 45 minutes in a plane or, you know, maybe maybe five hours in a car. I don't know. But these are realities. And actually, I think in the modern world, we think too much about 
getting to our destination as fast as possible and we don't enjoy the journey enough. I love a good old road trip. It's, for me, it's all part of getting there. It's how you get there and, and what happens on the way. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of airports, I have to say. All of the queuing and the security checks and stuff like that, I find it quite kind of noisy, stressful. Well, aren't you in that uh, posh lounge uh, yeah. when you do it, Dale? <laughs> no, no. I just find the whole experience generally, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> it is an absolute ache. You're completely right. It's not, anyway, it's just they like trip. that. It's got something wrong with them, surely. <laughs> yeah, <probably. laughs> but you know, it's super cheap and it's super fast, and we all get yeah. to buzz around the world, you know, without thinking about the consequences. And most of the journeys that people take, you know, I don't think they're that important. And it's part of how we have to change our behaviour in in this future world uh, in which we have to fight the climate crisis because you know it's it's the biggest existential threat that we've probably ever faced as a as a species and if we don't deal with it you know um, then uh, there's going to be a lot of trouble yeah, I mean, and it'll make the sea virus look like uh, you know a common cold and there is a a, a reality actually as you, you just touched on there about going to the airport because if you've got to go to, it's all very well saying it's only an hour flight but actually the 2 hours before and the rigmarole and the picking up the luggage and all that goes with it how often have many of us flown and realized that actually all the bit either side took longer than the flight so yeah, it's not always right. quite as convenient as you might first think it is no when you you've got to compare numbers. apples to apples you know i've yeah. made a couple of trips to europe by train take part in un events and stuff like that and uh, i enjoyed the train much more but when you look at the, exactly the comparison you made to fly to make the same trip Pretty much the same time. Yeah, indeed. Um, here's one about your own football stadium. Um, this is a beauty because you had the audacity. And what were you thinking of, Dale, to think, wouldn't it be good to build a new stadium that incorporates not just a stadium, but good for uh, locals and business? It's environmentally completely considerate in how it was being built. It's aesthetically pretty darn attractive. And some people thought this was not a good idea and wanted a for whatever reason, stand in your way. Yeah, we came up with the idea about, I nearly said 100 years ago, but it was five <laughs> years ago. I don't know why I thought 100. Um, Feel, it's it's 100 no, it feels site. like 100 years. Yeah, <laughs> probably. But it's a 100-acre site. That's probably where the confusion came from. Um, and we, we dubbed the, uh, the development Eco Park, and it's a combination uh, home for a new football stadium and some sporting facilities, along with a 4,000-job green tech business park the restoration of a missing piece of canal, creation of a wetland, and all sorts of uh, habitat creation and planting, uh, with a net biodiversity gain of 16% after the development compared to the baseline today. So, it, you know, it kind of demonstrates that we can build and create uh, habitats for nature. We, you know, they're not opposing forces. Yeah. Uh, the stadium designed by Zaha Hadid, made entirely out of wood, first in the world to be done that way, and the lowest footprint, carbon footprint stadium anywhere in the world as a result of that. And, you know, just generally an amazing project that would bring about 200 million into the local economy every year. Um, but most importantly, perhaps create a space for green industries to grow, for these green companies that, that we need to lead the fight against climate crisis, to have a home here in Gloucestershire. Um, we got planning permission for it in December, just after the election. Uh, obviously, we'd upset the government in October when we took Boris to court to uh, avoid the no-deal Brexit. And then we supported Labour during the election because of the green industrial revolution planning uh, policies. Uh, it was absolutely a political move to then, uh, you know, several days after the election for the Secretary of State to write to the council and say, look, we may call this in, don't issue the planning permission. That was three months ago, more or less. 
and yesterday we heard from the Secretary of State that they're not going to call it in. It was ironic because the letter said uh, call-in powers are only to be used essentially for exceptional circumstances and they prefer local councils to make the decision and this wasn't an exceptional case and they were happy to let the council make the decision and you know we, we all knew this was the reality but it took them three months to tell us but that's good we cleared that um, so now we can get the planning permission issued start the detailed design uh, we're submitting a new application in a few days time for the business park again because we had to take it out and put it back in there's sure. all kinds of complicated but um so in layman's terms we're on, when, would we're that on be? Way. When, when is that an up and running stadium where you can play football and start the business <laughs> and enjoy everything that's around it i reckon three to four years is the window okay. earliest would be three and i hope latest four so somewhere in the middle of that i hope just two final points. Alex says, uh, Dale, subscriber to the podcast, long-term Ecotricity customer as well. Have you ever considered live events? People need to hear what you're saying and see you too. Oh, that's nice. I do some. We were talking just now about WOMAD, weren't we, for yeah. example. So we, we have a stage at WOMAD and we uh, we hold talks. Uh, Jon Snow hosts them for us, which is very kind of him. Uh, not the um, Game of Thrones of Jon Snow, the Channel 4 man. <laughs> the um, real one. You know, yeah, the real one, the original. And, and yeah, and I, I do try to do uh, live events, speaking events, but um, usually a bit pushed for time, but I appreciate that. I'm going to try and do more. I'm sure. trying to move out of um, running the company day to day and, and move more into a, a kind of influencing sphere. Uh, and a final point, I'd like to think this is about somebody in the government listening to this podcast, because there was this news this week about lifting the block on onshore wind, or have they? That's, there's a question mark on that as well. Explain what's going on. Yeah, the government announced that they were going to allow onshore wind and solar back into the scheme called the Contract for Difference. Uh, basically, that's how renewable energy and, and other forms of low-carbon energy are supported at the moment. Uh, and they excluded wind and solar four or five years ago, something like that, which is all part of killing them off. So they made this big announcement last week that they were letting them back in. Uh, but the thing that most media missed, uh, and I don't understand why they missed it and didn't uh, understand the implications of it, is that they said that they were going to make it harder to get planning permission for onshore wind in England. And it's already impossible. So that seemed a bit bizarre. So but they've lift, lifted, the, own... but lifted the ban, but they're going to make it harder to actually Well, uh, let get me explain. They shut, they shut the industry down yep. it, on two fronts. They excluded it from any form of financial support and then they precluded it from getting planning consent. So what they announced last week was to allow it to have financial support, but they said they're going to double down on get it, keeping it out of the planning system. But Scotland has a different planning system. So what this announcement actually does is pave the way for Scotland to take the burden, if you like, yeah. of the growth of onshore wind that we need to get to being a zero carbon country. And the Climate Change Committee have told the government that our current onshore wind capacity has to triple to get there. And I think this is a cynical move by the government to dump all of that responsibility on Scotland, where they don't really have any voters to worry about. I was going to say, was this all about 100 backbench Tories annoyed that they might have windmills in their back gardens? Yeah, in the southeast, pretty much, I think. But yeah, that's where it originated uh, in Cameron's time. His short, glorious Which is kind of extreme. It was short indeed. But but he would have stood to, <laughs> to gain a lot from that, of course. You know, you'd think, you'd think actually that would mark him out as somebody who's done the right thing, not the wrong thing. How how is that? What's there for him to lose? You'd think, but there he was putting a big old block in the way of it. Yeah, and he gave us a referendum on the EU, didn't he? Yeah. So I think he was weak, actually, <laughs> Cameron. I Rob's think he was a weak leader. 
Yeah, well, and, and, and history, history will will perhaps judge him uh, not in the way that he first thought, but because of the very things I think you've just touched on. And Rob on Facebook says, on the back of that, are we going to see new windmills from Ecotricity after this move? Well, we still have this planning problem. I mean, that is a problem. But during the election, uh, we launched an idea. It's a way to bring onshore wind energy back, but also a way to uh, bring the benefits of that to everybody. So quite often you hear talk of community ownership and, and mm. that kind of stuff. Um, and it's held up to be a great thing. And I think it's it's an okay thing, but the only people that can afford to take part in share schemes for local renewable energy schemes are people with, uh, by definition, some spare cash. And sure. so it kind of doesn't include everybody. The idea we came up with is a combination of things. We looked at the whole county of Gloucestershire and we said, how many windmills would it take to power all of the homes, quarter of a million homes? We found it was just 100 windmills and just 3% of the hilltop land. Yes, just 3% of the hilltop land of the county. And we said, we, we know that the hilltops are the sensitive areas, but look, this is a real choice that we need to make. We can go zero carbon from, from a housing point of view in our county with just 100 windmills. I'm sure we can live with that. And the second element of the plan was for these windmills to be owned by local authorities. Now, they've faced very big cuts in their own funding and the services that they provide. If they owned these 100 windmills, it would be worth something like seven to eight million pounds a year that went into local services. And that was the best form of community ownership that I can yeah. think of because everybody benefits from that. Yeah. Uh, so we've launched this new idea. And it is possible to unlock planning with the support of local authorities and local people. That is possible. So we're going to try and pursue that in Gloucestershire as a kind of blueprint project for the rest of the country. It's a kind of new way to develop renewable sure. energy sure. with with public ownership, but not in a nationalised kind of sense, a much more localised version of that. Well, I think we should keep our eye on the, the, the whole windmill story and what it means going forward and who else is trying to get this impenetrable planning permission. We'll, we'll no doubt revisit that on future episodes. Thanks, Ian. Just one thing. Yeah. We are building some solar projects this year. Uh, we've got a couple that we were building anyway. Uh, we can build them without financial support from the government, and um, we'll be building them in the summer, about 12 megawatts worth, something like that. Um, so onshore solar is uh, is back and, and is viable. Onshore wind, not quite yet. Good work. More on that as well on the next episode. Thank you to Dale. Don't forget, of course, you can subscribe for free to this podcast from your own podcast provider. That means you get each new episode automatically. Uh, do leave a review on there as well. And really importantly, make sure you follow Dale on social media, twitter.com slash dalevince or facebook.com slash dalevince. And we'll speak to you on the next episode. Zero carbon. East off.